Our sermon today will be taken from Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 to 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the river, over the canals and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts, and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. And Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Thus says the Lord. Thanks, Jackie. Friends, let's pray one more time before the preaching of the word. Father, I pray that the gospel and and you, who have you revealed yourself to be in your word, will never grow numb in our hearts, that we'd always see you and behold you and fall into deeper love of you as we worship you. And Father, as we do so today, as we open up your word, we beg you that you would give us more mercy, grace upon grace, because the transformation of your children is not a work that a pastor or a singer or a liturgist can ever do but it's only the work of your spirit as you are pleased to use the imperfect efforts of your servants. So we beg you now, Father, more than anything, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we may truly become transformed more and more into your likeness. Through your word, Jesus, name we pray. Amen. So friends, we're going through a series through the life of Moses. If you've been here for the uh, past month or two, we're going through Exodus. We started chapter 1, and right now we're in chapter 8, and we're hitting, finally, uh, or last week we hit the plague narratives, right? And a lot of you maybe know the story of the, the plagues. Pharaoh won't let God's people go, right? So God sent Pharaoh in Egypt 10 different plagues. And 
I've actually found it pretty hard to preach on these plagues. And here's why I think it's, it's hard to preach on the plagues. Not necessarily because God is portrayed as angry or wrathful. Okay, what makes the plague narratives hard to turn into a sermon is because I find in them a lack of clear and direct commands. There's a lack of clear and direct commands. For example, if we're preaching on passages like love your neighbors, there's a clear command there, right? Matthew 22, love your neighbors. Okay, we're turning into a sermon. Or throw off the sin that so easily entangles, Hebrews 12. Okay, there's a clear direct command there. And it's not that hard to make into a sermon. But these plague narratives, there's no really clear command. There's no explicit command that says, do this or don't do that. And you can't really even say, be like Moses, because Moses himself is often not presented as a moral example here. All the plague narrative does is display what God can do and who God is. And that's it. And and, and, and readers here are simply called to behold and worship God. And that, in a sense, is the command. So, us as practical urbanites might be tempted to think or say, what's the application? Right? Give me the to-do. Give me the, give me the so what. So, what am I supposed to do out of this? Am I just supposed to behold and worship God? Is that it? That, that sounds like a bit of a waste of time. Well, it's not. It's not because, three reasons. One, worship is the purpose of your being. Okay? Worship is the original purpose of why you were created for. So when, when you behold God and fall into worship, if that's all you do week in and week out, that's not a waste of time. That is the purpose of time. Two, it's not a waste because, do you remember in New Testament, 2 Corinthians, there's a verse that says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When we worship God, we are transformed to one degree of glory to another. In other words, worship is not just something you do. Worship does something to you. It changes you. Okay? Because we all become like the thing that we worship. And you know this if you're a soccer player and you worship Lionel Messi. His soccer game is going to look like his. If you're a musician and you worship Coldplay, I don't know, your music's going to look like theirs. If you're a poet and you worship Dickens, if you're an author and you worship Hemingway, your art is going to look more and more like theirs. So first, when we worship the true God, okay, it's not a waste of time. It is a purpose of time. Two, when you worship God, it's not a waste of time because you are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And also, third, when you worship the true God, it will reveal to you all the other fake gods in your life. In the U.S., how they train police officers to identify fake currency is not by showing them every single fake currency out there. What they do is they make the police officer very, 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 very familiar with the original currency. And what that does, if they know the original currency well and good, they're going to be able to identify the fake ones automatically. So, it's not a waste of time. It'll help, it'll, it is a purpose of time. It'll help you transform into his likeness and it'll tell you all the fake gods in your life. And that third thing I mentioned is I think what the focus of our passage is today. So as we behold the true God, as we revealed all the false gods in our lives, as we worship him, 
Let's, let's grow into his likeness more and more. And there's three things about false worship here in this passage that I do want to point out. Okay? False worship. One, why it's attractive, where it falls short, and what's the consequence? Why it's attractive, where it falls short, and what's the consequence? First, why it's attractive. Okay. Quick background. In case you're unfamiliar with the story up to now, in this point of Exodus, we are told that God, in his mercy, has compassionately chosen a people for himself named Israel, okay, to live as his servants to worship him, and he's going to be their benevolent, compassionate, righteous king who rules over them with grace and might. That's the relationship God wants with his people. But Pharaoh here refuses to let God's people go and worship God. Pharaoh wants Israel for himself to work as his slaves, right? Cheap labor. So last week, because of Pharaoh's stubbornness to letting God's people go, God sends the first plague out of the ten, okay? He turned the water in the Nile. The Nile is a river that goes across Egypt and it was a source of life for the Egyptians. God turns the water in the Nile to becoming blood, and Pharaoh still wouldn't listen after the water of the Nile turned into blood. So now, this is where we land in chapter 8, verse 1. God is warning Pharaoh again through Moses in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But yet we see Pharaoh once again refusing. So God sends in the second plague. And here's what's interesting about the second plague. God uses frogs. The frog also happens to be an animal in Egypt that has been made into a false god and is worshipped by the Egyptians. The name of that false god, or goddess, rather, is Hecate. Hecate, to the Egyptians, was a goddess of childbirth, and she has a big frog head. It's not an insult, it's just facts. So remember the first plague, God uses the Nile to attack Pharaoh. And by the way, the Nile will also, was also a form of false worship in Egypt. The false god in the Nile is called Hapi. Hapi was a false god, and Hapi was responsible for the flooding of the Nile to irrigate uh, uh, the, the trees and the plants and the, and the agriculture. And now God uses frogs to attack Pharaoh, which also happens to be a false god in Egypt. So God here is clearly through plagues one and two, at least, we see attacking the false gods of Egypt. Now, I think most people, especially if you've been around churchy circles, okay, you've probably grown up in the church or hang around Christians or you've heard sermons a lot, you've probably heard of the term false worship, you've probably heard of the term idolatry, you've probably heard of the term worshiping false gods a lot. But what really is that? It's a bit of an intangible concept, right? It's hard to grasp. Well, God in this passage today breaks it down for us. He gives us his thesaurus definition of what idolatry, what false worship is. Here it is. False worship is the reversal of the creation order. False worship is a reversal of the creation order. Four out of ten plagues, God uses the animal kingdom. Our plague today, number two, plague number two, God uses frogs. Plague number three, God uses gnats, which are like small bee-like things. Plague number four, God uses flies. And plague number eight, God uses locusts, which are small grasshoppers. God here, what's he doing? He's, he's not only attacking the Egyptian false gods, he's also defining, giving us a definition of what false worship is. False worship is the reversal of the creation order. Stick with me for a second. Think back to Genesis 1 and 2. 
What was the original creation order of things? How was it meant to be? God, man, and then animals. That was the original creation order. God ruled over man. Man was given the authority to name the animals. And when you name something back then, you're communicating authority, sovereign uh, rulership over it. Okay? But now what happened, at least in Egypt, man has elevated a created thing, the frog, to God status. Right? And by doing so, reverse the creation order. The created thing now is on top, and then there's man, and then there's God in the bottom. You see, that's idolatry. Which, by the way, also happened in Genesis chapter 3. When sin entered the world, what happened? Hmm? Adam and Eve listened and trusted and obeyed what? A snake. A creature. More than God. Above the creator, they've committed idolatry. And then what happened when Adam and Eve did that? All of creation went absolutely crazy. That's what God said in chapter 3, right? Genesis, curse is the ground because of you, which is the same thing that we see happening here in the plagues. Because of idolatry, all of creation is going out of control. Why? Because the creator-creature dynamic has been shattered. Mankind, creatures, that were originally meant to display God's unity and love, we hate each other now. <laughs> we gossip, we slander, we want to kill each other, if not out loud in our hearts all the time. The earth, that's supposed to be our foundation, quakes now. The majestic oceans, that's what display God's majesty, sends us tsunamis now. And as highlighted in our passage today, frogs are jumping into people's foods. Idolatry wrecks havoc in all of creation. And it's not like, you know, oh, there's a cute frog in my bed. That's not what's happening here. This is a national health hazard. They didn't have pesticide back then. They didn't have antibiotics, immunization shots. When frogs die in their bedrooms and kneading bowls, as it says here, in their kitchens, that's a health catastrophe. The point here is this. When we elevate a created thing and worship and trust and rely in them above the true God, we've committed idolatry. This shatters the original creation order and chaos breaks loose. Tim Keller, pastor in New York, in his book called Making Sense of God, says this. You harm yourself when you love anything more than God. If you love your spouse or romantic partner more than God, that will either drive them away or crush them under the weight of your expectations. If you love your work and career more than God, you will also necessarily love it more than your family, your community, and your own health. And so that will lead to physical and emotional breakdown, and at times even possibly to social injustice. If you love anything more than God, you harm the object of your love, you harm yourself, and you harm the world around you. In other words, chaos. I love my children with all my heart, but you know what will happen if I idolize them? You know what will happen if I elevate them to a position of God in my life when their life, when their well-being, when their school progress, when, when their performance becomes an object of my true adoration and worship? You know what will happen? I'll be consistently disappointed because they'll never be able to live up to it and the pressure will crush them. Why? Because they're not God. 
They're creatures. They can't carry that kind of weight. See, when I commit idolatry, chaos. I love my job. I love pastoring and preaching. But you know what happens when the success of this church becomes the main place where I hinge my hope and validation from? You know what will happen? When I elevate CCC to a level of God in my life, I'll be consistently anxious. At best, our church will be a mile wide but an inch deep. I'll crush the staff team. And the servant teams will be so annoyed because I'm brutally micromanaging them all the time. It'll be utter chaos. That's what happens when we fall into false worship and break the creation order. So, then why do we do it? Here's why. Verse 7. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up out of the land. They did the same. If you're here for a sermon last week, Sam, our intern, uh, last week pointed out something very interesting in the sermon. Remember in the first plague, when God turned the water of the Nile into blood, and uh, Pharaoh's magicians here, uh, Pharaoh's magicians then was able to turn water to blood, you see the same thing happening now in chapter 8, verse 7. God made frogs swarm in Egypt, and the magicians was able to do the same thing. They're able to copy it, okay? And last week, Sam described the product of Pharaoh's magicians uh, copying God's uh, miracle as the Kawe Mangadua version of God's miracle, right? For you don't know what that is. It's like the Walmart knockoff version of God's miracles, okay? Why is worshiping a false god, why is idolatry so attractive? It's this. It's because created things can promise us and can give us similar things to what God promises and gives us. It feels the same, but it's not. When our children succeed, we feel like we've been turned into more of an affirmed person. You have not been turned into a more affirmed person. See, if someone finds their primary sense of affirmation in the performance of their kids, guess what's going to happen when their kids fail? They're going to feel inadequate. That means their children's success didn't really turn them into people with a secure identity. Their children's success merely veiled and hid their sense of inadequacy. Because when their children fail and perform poorly, the feelings of inadequacy just rises back up again. Why? Because it never left. It was just hidden for a moment's time. When our business picks up and our career picks up and profit margin rises, that feels like we've been turned into a more peaceful person, right? Things are more sustainable, right? Things are, things are safer now. But that's not true. Not really. Those numbers didn't actually turn us into a more peaceful person. All those numbers did was subdue our anxiety. That's all it did. Because when profit loss occurs again, what happens to that anxiety that was once subdued? It gushes back out. You see, money can never turn us into peaceful people. All it can do is pin down the anxiety for a moment's time. But don't you see that? It feels the same, doesn't it? It feels similar, right? Subdued anxiety feels like peace. Veiled or hidden inadequacies feel like affirmation. The high that you get from substance abuse feels like joy. Self-indulgent sensuality feels like love. It's not. They're Kawe Mangadua Walmart knockoff versions of them. 
By the way, no disrespect to those stores mentioned above over and over again. They do provide good products every now and then. <laughs> you know this, don't you? You do. You know that you want more than just subdued anxiety. You long for more than just veiled inadequacy. You want more than just momentary heights. You do. What our hearts truly seek, it can't be located in the creature. These things, as C.S. Lewis summarized so clearly, these things, they're good images of what we really desire. But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself. They're only a scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. That's why it's so tempting to worship created things. It smells the same, it sounds the same, it feels the same, but it's not the same as what God promises, which is leading us to our second point here. Let's go deeper into this idolatry and where it falls short. Okay, now something happened in verse eight that happened for the first time in the book of Exodus. For eight chapters, for eight chapters, God and Pharaoh has been at it. Okay, they've been in constant conflict. And finally here in Exodus chapter 8, verse 8, for the first time ever in Exodus, Pharaoh finally admits defeat. This in itself is profound. Okay, But what's more profound is what made Pharaoh admit defeat. Now you think, right? You think what made Pharaoh admit defeat is that God would just keep showering him with plagues and plagues and plagues. And after God showers him with one of the plagues, Pharaoh's going to say, I'm defeated, I'm lost. But that's not what happened. Notice here, Pharaoh begged God and admits defeat in God's act of taking away the plague, not in giving the plague. Remember last week, Pharaoh's magicians, they were able to copy, you know, God turning the Nile into blood, and now they're able to copy the frog thing, and that's, you know, for them, they think they can do it. And, and, and they can knock off, they can perform knockoff brands of God's work, but you know what they can't do? They couldn't turn the blood back into water. They couldn't shoo the frogs away. And this is when they realized their incompetence. This is when they admitted their defeat. Look at verse 8. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice the Lord. That's the first time he's ever admitted defeat because he can't take the curse away. And what Moses said in verse 10, Be it as, as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Pharaoh will see his incompetence. Pharaoh will admit defeat. Pharaoh will know that there is no one else like the Lord God. When? Not when God brought about the curse, but when God took away the curse. What displayed God's glory? What sets him apart from all the other fake Egyptian gods at the time? It wasn't his ability to bring about the curse. They can fake that one, but it's his ability to take it away. So in verses 11 to 14, Moses cried out to God, and it happened. The frogs went away, but even after this, how stubborn is his heart? In verse 15, after God displayed his power and sovereignly in his mercy took away the frogs, Pharaoh's heart was not yet softened toward God. Verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite or when there was relief or comfort, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And, and this, back to our point, second point, and this is where idolatry really falls short, you know. 
See, let's, let's stick with me. Let's contrast between Pharaoh and Moses. Let's compare Pharaoh and Moses here for a second. First, Moses. Do you remember just a few chapters ago, Moses didn't want to go to Pharaoh. You remember that? Moses was a coward. He was refusing to obey God. He didn't want to do any of that. And God said, okay, I'm going to give you Aaron to speak on your behalf because you're too scared to talk to Pharaoh right now. I'm going to give you Aaron. Okay? Um, but now... As you read your passage, who, who is it that you see speaking so boldly to Pharaoh? Moses. Not Aaron. See, what's happening here is that Moses is moving forward in his character growth, in his trust and confidence in God. And this isn't an isolated instance just in this chapter. It's a progression throughout the whole plague narrative. Plagues 1 to 3, you're going to see God still use Moses, but then still use Aaron's staff to perform his miracles. Okay, Look at our passage. Look at verse 5. Whose staff did God use there? Aaron's staff. Okay. Now go down to verse 16, plague number 3. Whose staff did God use there? Aaron's staff. But as we get to plagues 8 to 10, it's no longer Aaron's staff that's used, but it's Moses' staff. This is to communicate that Moses is growing in his character and his trust in the Lord. What happened to Moses? How did he grow in character and trust in the Lord? Well, friends, in these plagues, he beheld God's glory and he was transformed from one degree of glory to another. See, Moses beheld God's sovereignty in controlling the animal kingdom. God saw God's, God's sovereign, uh, Moses saw God's sovereignty meticulously ordaining where each frog would go. <laughs> he beheld God's power in taking away the plagues. He saw God's power and victory over all the other false gods. He saw God's reliability in accomplishing everything that God said he would do. He, he fell in love with God's commitment to him and to his people. He saw God's ability to toy with his enemies. He saw God's patience with himself. And throughout all of this, Moses continually beheld God's glory, and he was transformed into one degree of glory to another. Why? Because you become more like the object of your worship. This is a man who is continually being transformed. This isn't a man who, is, who just has merely subdued anxieties. He's actually growing in peacefulness. This wasn't a man just with a veiled sense of inadequacy. He was actually growing in his confidence in the Lord. This wasn't a man whose fears was just momentarily hidden. This was a man who was actually growing in his courage and trust in the Lord. But now, look at Pharaoh. Oh, how idolatry falls short. Look at Pharaoh. See, he only had the appearance of obedience, of trust in the Lord, but he never actually fell in worship of the true God. His character was never transformed. That's why idolatry falls short. Okay, The second Pharaoh experienced respite, verse 15 says, the second he experienced relief and comfort from the Lord, he hardened his heart again. In other words, the second life felt good again, God was put back on the bottom of the priority list. What's different between Moses and Pharaoh? See, Moses' relationship with God was marked by worship. But Pharaoh's relationship with God was marked by ingratiation. What's ingratiation? Ingratiation is when you do something good for someone else only because you know they're going to do something for you in return. When you, when you do that, you aren't really doing the act of kindness because you love the other person. You're doing the act of kindness because you love yourself. And that's how, how Pharaoh treated all his false gods. That's why he worshipped the frog god Hecate. Because Hecate could bring many sons to Egypt. 
That's why Pharaoh worshipped the false god of the Nile, Hapi. Right? Because Egyptians believed that Hapi was the one who caused the Nile to flood on an annual basis, which then irrigated their agriculture, which is the financial anchor of their economy at the time. That's not worship. That's ingratiation. You're doing something for a divine being to get something in return. That's not worship. And see, here's the thing. Just like veiled inadequacy feels like affirmation, just like subdued anxiety feels like peace, just like substance abuse feels like joy, and just like self-indulgent sensuality feels like love, ingratiation towards God feels like worship. It's not. When you do something for God to get something in return, you are not worshiping. You're loving yourself. Ingratiation is driven by a desire to gain control Worship is driven by trust. Ingratiation drives you to God only when you need him. Worship drives you to God because he's all you need. The ingratiator loses God in himself, but the worshiper loses himself in God. Pharaoh treated the true God like he did all the other false gods out there in an ingratiating way. That's why his character didn't actually change. That's why his obedience is shallow. Because he wasn't obeying God for God, he was obeying God for himself. What a stark rebuke for all of us here today, isn't it? Who here has never tried to barter with God? Who here has never fallen into the making created things the main source for your hope and your purpose, and your happiness. I'll be the first to admit my failure. And I wonder, I tremble even, to think about what makes God more angry? Us creating false gods, or us treating the true God like we would a false god? Which one kindles his wrath more? There's a cost, you know which is our third point. What's the consequence? Let's go to the last section of our passage, plague number three. Okay, we're going to plague number three now. Because Pharaoh still refused to obey God. In the verses 16 to 18, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Now here's a use of another animal, but there's something a little bit different here than God's usage of frogs. See, God didn't just summon the gnats out of the dust like he did the frogs out of the Nile, but God actually turned the dust into gnats. Why? God's making a point. Here, remember, stick with me one more time back to Genesis. When Adam and Eve in the garden obeyed the serpent, a creature, right, rather than God, and reversed the creation order and committed adultery and false worship, God cursed them in Genesis 3 and said what? Cursed are you, you will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Dust here symbolizing death. Friends, I don't know how else to say this, but if this whole Bible thing is true, okay, 
if the God of the Bible that we're currently beholding in this passage actually exists, if it's true, that means infinitely scarier than self-disappointment, infinitely worse than crushing your loved ones with expectations, infinitely worse than messing up creation. You know what the scariest consequence of idolatry is? What God promised in verse 16 of our passage? That we will die. That is the consequence of idolatry. And look, the death here is not just physical death. When God informed Adam about what happens to his body after he dies, he's not giving Adam a biology lesson of what happens to mankind after they die. He's proclaiming a curse. The eternal God is pronouncing an eternal curse to an idolatrous creature. And he's going to say, I'm going to send an eternal plague. And look, there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to hide. Notice, I don't want to let go of the pressure here. Stick with me, okay? The magicians couldn't copy this plague. This is the first plague they couldn't copy. They did the blood, they did the frogs, they couldn't copy this one. Why not? Verse 18 to 19, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Why couldn't they copy this one? Because they're out of their playing field. See, so far, they had home court advantage. God's been beating them in the Nile, okay? With the blood and the frogs came out of the Nile. That all happened in the Nile. The Nile was their playing field. They had home court advantage, okay? That's where they, they had most power and most strength and God allowed them uh, to struggle there a bit but now God goes beyond the Nile to the dust of the earth what's he doing he's declaring his authority not only over the Nile but over all of creation I'm God of all things all you can do is this little Nile thing I'm the God of all things he later covers their skin with boils declaring authority over human biology then hail comes down from the heavens declaring his authority over the skies and the weather then God covers the stinking sun, <laughs> declaring his authority over intergalactic space. He's saying, behold, Pharaoh, you puny thing. How dare you challenge me? Don't you know who I am? There's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to go. All of creation obeys the word of the sovereign king. God said, let there be light. Light obeyed. God said, separate the ground from the sky. The sky and the ground obeyed. God said, separate the land from the sea. They obeyed. Let there be vegetation. The trees bent to his will. Something as small as dust in the ground to something as ginormous as the sun in the heavens. All say, yes, Lord, except for us. <laughs> Puny humans. We dare challenge the authority of God. We dare say no to him and reverse the creation order. Who here has not fallen into false worship? Who here hasn't treated God in an ingratiating way? We are all Pharaoh-like creatures. Our hearts are hard, is it not? I'll be the first to admit it. So, what does God do? Hmm? He wants to deliver his people. Remember, he, he doesn't want to leave us to our own demise, to our own curses. How can God declare victory over our rebellious, idolatrous hearts and reveal to us that there indeed is no one like him? Well, let me remind us 
when was it in this passage that Moses said, now you will see that there is no one like our God? When did Moses say that? Did Moses say that when God sent the plagues? No. Moses said it when God took the curse of the plagues away. Friends, we like Pharaoh, we like Adam, like all of mankind, we have reversed the creation order. We deserve to be plagued with the curse of death. But you know what's going to make you say this? You know what's going to make you say, wow, there is no one like our God. You know what's actually going to make you say that? You know what's going to make you stop bartering with God and actually fall into worship? It's when you see God take the curse of death that you deserve away. That's what is going to happen. How does God do that? Let me read to you Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Even the Apostle Paul in our confession of sin earlier, the end of Romans 7, he was lamenting, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Then immediately in Romans 8, verse 1, he boldly declares, for now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How did God take away the curse of death that you and I deserve for our idolatry? He died in our place. Behold your God. And until you see that, until you see how he took the curse away, Unless you see that on that cross, he drunk every ounce of cursed death that you deserve and died in your place, you will never fall into worship. You will always barter. But if you behold the cross, how do you barter with somebody who's given you everything? Because of what he's done on the cross, the Christian can confidently say, none of my current sufferings is caused because God is stingy. Look at the cross. Because of the cross, the Christian can say, I am where I am. Whatever situation that might be, because the hands of sovereign grace has somehow deemed it best for me. Whether or not I know the reason that is irrelevant because my God has given me everything. If that's the heart you have, then, then you'll slowly be changed, like Moses was, actually into a more peaceful person, actually into a more joyful person, more secure, boldly obedient, serving him, simply because he's worth it. And that's it. Behold the glory of God, he who controls the galaxy hung on a cross for you and drunk the plague of death you and I deserve. Only when you see that will you say, there is no one like the Lord our God. Only then will you marvel at his beauty, glory in his ways, and for crying out loud, only then will we finally stop bartering and be transformed into someone who can continually say that whatever our tomorrows be filled with, good or ill, will triumph through our sorrows and rise to bless him still. Behold your God, and I pray you be transformed into his likeness. Our service isn't over yet, so I invite us now to come, continually behold and adore 
as we continue to worship him and be transformed more into his likeness. Let's pray. Father, you've created all of creation for the purpose of your majestic name and glory. But yet we, weak humans, have had the audacity to say no to you and reverse the creation order. Oh, Father, make us tremble. Make the reality of your righteousness and your holiness real in our hearts. Let us feel the weight of it. Because unless we feel the extent of your wrath, we will never know the extent of the love of Christ for us. For he drank every ounce of that wrath that we have collected upon our own heads. And Father, as we behold you taking the curse away, bring our hearts back unto you and cry out, it is finished, I am guilty no more. I'm free and I'm sinless, not because of my works, but because of what you have done. Bring us, Father, to our knees and worship. In your son's name we pray. Amen.